some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, good morning. If I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan, pastor for our church. And as Felicia mentioned at the beginning of our service, today is a special day. It's Baptism Sunday. And so after our sermon, we'll sing together and then we'll transition into baptism. I'll say more about that later. But just know that because of that, this sermon will be a tad bit shorter than usual and also anticipating some of the realities that we celebrate in baptism. So with that said, we've just read the text. Let me pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this great passage. Our God, please be with us now as we look at Luke 18 and as we try not just to understand what's here, but in humble reliance on you to encounter Jesus by the power of your spirit. So do that work in this place and in our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen. In 1950, the Gallup organization ran a survey, and they asked young people, people who were just about to go off to uni, do you think of yourself as a very important person? In 1950, 12% of students going off to uni said, yes, I'm a very important person. Gallup did the same survey in 2005 people just about to go off to uni, do you think you're a very important person? And this time, 80% said, yes, I'm a very important person. One cultural commentator thinking about that shift, that change, said, we now live in a culture that can best be described as the culture of the big me, in which most people think of themselves as the center of the universe. And in such a culture, Humility is a gem that's becoming more and more rare to find. Now, as a church, for the past few weeks, we've been in a sermon series talking about repentance. And what I want to do today, this is the last sermon of that series, to round out our consideration of repentance, I want to talk about humility. Because as this passage shows us, without humility, there can be no repentance, And in the eyes of God, those who humble themselves are, in fact, the ones who are exalted. And those who live proudly end up falling. Without humility, there can be no repentance. And so if we're going to be a repenting church, we've got to be a humble church. And so we want to consider this passage and ask what it shows us, not just about repentance, but about humility and about how to become people who walk in humility. Now, there are three things here that I want to draw out from this great passage. It's a very well-known story, and there are three things that I want to show you. First, a cosmic courtroom. Second, two different ways to stand. And then third, alien righteousness. 
and you all just looked up at me like, what does that mean? Well, that was the point. Uh, if I lose you in the first two points, I'll get you back for alien righteousness. What's that about? Cosmic courtroom, two ways to stand, and alien righteousness. So first, what do I mean cosmic courtroom? Keep the passage open in front of you. In verse 9, we're told that this is a parable. A parable is a particular kind of story. It's a pretty simple story, but it's meant to illustrate profound spiritual truth. And what that means is a parable is not actually about the people in the story. It's about all of us. Jesus is giving a teaching that you're meant to ask, how do I fit into this story? Because it's about you. It's about humanity. So what's the point of this story? Well, we actually know by looking at the beginning and the end. Glance with me, if you would, verse 9. Jesus says that this parable is for those who were confident of their own righteousness. Righteousness. And then if you look down at the end of verse 14, it says, one of the men went home justified. Now, in English, those two words are here different, right? Righteousness, justified. But that's a mistake because in Greek, the language of the New Testament, it's the same word. And that tells us something about what this parable is all about. It's about the human quest for a verdict that says justified. You see, what Jesus is getting at in this story is that to be a human being is to kind of live in a cosmic courtroom in which your whole life is spent trying to justify yourself. Justify is a big theological word, but what it really means, this quest for righteousness, what it's really about is to have someone or something say to you, you're seen, you're accepted, you're not the sum total of the worst things that you've ever done. You belong and you matter. That's ultimately what justification or being justified is all about. And this parable is about people trying to be justified. How do you get righteousness? Because you and I can't live, we can't exist in this world without some voice telling us, some voice from outside of us saying, you're accepted, you're safe, you belong, you matter, you're not insignificant. Some of you maybe have seen in the early 1980s, there was a movie release called Chariots of Fire. It was a movie about two men who ran for the Great Britain Olympic team in 1924. They were in track and field. And these two men were extremely talented, but one of the men called Harold Abrams was his running was such a, a source of anxiety for him. Although he was extremely talented, he was always either elated when he ran and won a race or in despondency when he lost. And so as the movie goes on, what you realize is that for Harold Abrams, though very talented, running for him was not just running. It was the way that he proved to the world that he mattered. And there's a spot in the movie where he says to someone who's asking him, hey, why do you get so depressed when you lose? Harold Abrams responds in the movie and says, because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And you see, friends, that's what we're doing all the time, not running maybe, 
but we're all looking to something to justify our existence. It might be running or athletics. It might be a job. It might be getting into a certain grad school program. It might be that hope that finally maybe your parents will be proud of you. It might be if so-and-so will finally date you. And we're all looking to something to say you're justified, you're safe, I see you, and you matter. Our whole life is being lived in this kind of cosmic courtroom in which we're looking for a voice from the outside to say you're seen and you're safe. And the first question this passage asks us to consider is, what is it that you're looking to? What is it that you're looking to for your righteousness? What is it that you're looking to to say you're justified? We're all looking to something. And that leads us now to see, well, there are really only two ways to stand. And that's what the heart of the parable is about. Jesus says there's two people who go into the temple to pray. One of them is called a Pharisee, and the other person is called a tax collector. Let's consider both of them and tell us what they show us, see what they show us about what it means to pursue this sense of righteousness or being justified. First, we see the proud Pharisee. Let me read to you verse 10. It says, two men went into the temple to pray, one Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And in verse 11, we see that the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers and evildoers and adulterers, even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's the Pharisee, goes into the temple ostensibly to pray, but he occupies a position of pride. He stands apart from others as in, look at me. He's drawing attention to himself. And he talks to God, but the main subject is all about self. He's filled with pride. And he starts listing all of the good things that he does in his life. I fast twice a week. By the way, that's way beyond what the law requires. He says, I give a tenth of all I get. Again, above and beyond what the law requires. He also says, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. I don't do bad things. Now, (laughs) this person is very moral. He's very upright. He's the kind of person you'd want to have as a neighbor. And by the way, all the things that he's doing are good things. The Bible does talk about the importance of fasting. The Bible does talk about tithing and being generous with what you have and not doing bad things. Yes, the problem is not what he's doing, but that he's trusting in it. And that word trusting is a very significant word In the language of the parable, it means that when he stands before the judge in the cosmic courtroom, what he's saying is this, look at all the good things I've done. This is where my righteousness is. This is how I know that I matter. This is how I know that I'm safe and that I belong and that I'll be accepted. Look at all the good things that I do. And Jesus says that it's this guy the proud Pharisee who does a lot of good things, but who's trusting in them, who's relying on them for his sense of justification, he's the one that goes home not justified, but actually far from God. Why? Because the heart of the gospel is this. What saves you 
or what makes you right with God is not doing lots of good things. It's recognizing that even the good things that you do could never save you. And that we need to be saved from outside of ourselves. And the ultimate problem for this Pharisee was not that he was the things he was doing, it's that he was trusting in them. And that can never work. Let me give you a few reasons why. First, if you say to God or if you say to yourself or to other people, look at all the great things that I do. This is what gives me a sense of meaning and security and identity in life. First, consider you'll never be able to rest. Your soul will always be busy. If your sense of identity comes from your performance, from your achievements, well, the moment you start stop achieving, you'll wonder, am I still good enough? Let's say you get your sense of identity from how much you crush it at work. What happens when you're made redundant? Or what happens when someone smarter and better comes along? You're not just sad if you lose your job, you become despondent. Because your meaning in life, your justification is connected to your achievement. What about a relationship? You know, if you really are into somebody and they break up with you, that's really hard. It should make you sad. But if you get your meaning in life from that relationship, if that person is your justification, you're not just sad, which is okay. You become despondent. And this Pharisee, as he builds his identity and his achievement, his soul can never rest. And he's always going to be busy. And if he misses fasting one week, or if he's not as generous with his stuff, he's going to have an internal voice saying, see, you're not adding up. But not just will his soul never rest. Second reason why this kind of approach to justification doesn't work, you'll always look down on other people. You see, this guy was really impressive. And what happens, and we see it in verse 9 of the parable, is he looked down on everybody else. God, I thank you that I'm not like them. Those people who don't have their act together, those people who are so lazy, those people who are so immature, I'm not like them. I'm so much better. And what happened is, as this person put his full identity in his performance he became someone that actually couldn't be in real human community because he was constantly comparing himself with other people. And compared to most other people, he did look pretty impressive. And that made him lonely and isolated and pretty pompous. So his soul could never rest. He was always looked at on others. And then third, and most of all, he was far from God. Because even when he goes to pray, He's the main, he, he's gone to the temple to pray, but really he's praising himself because he's his own savior. He's not relying on God and grace. He's relying on his own actions to make him right with God. And ultimately he's missed out on God completely. This way of, of having righteousness or being justified, it doesn't actually work and it won't bring peace and it won't connect you meaningfully to others. So is there a better way? And the answer, of course, is yes. Not the way of the proud Pharisee, but the way of the humble tax collector. Now come with me again back to the text. The Pharisee has done his prayer. I, t I give everything away I have. I'm, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like others. But now look at verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. 
he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector was humbled. And when he comes into prayer, he says, only God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, when he evaluates these two men in these two prayers, he says, you know, that's the guy who goes home justified. Why? Because he was humbled. And I want you to see this. This is so significant. In the verse 13, the tax collector, when he goes to pray, he doesn't say, God, have mercy on the sins that I've done. Like this past week, I did, you know, 10 bad things. I shouldn't have done them. Please have mercy on those things. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, that's the whole difference. Because he understands it's not just the things that I do, it's who I am that needs mercy. I need mercy. I'm not just a person who occasionally steps out of line. My whole, my whole life has been about trying to save myself. My whole life has been an effort and an attempt to be my own savior. And it hasn't worked. It can't work. And so here in his prayer, he's not stacking up his good things and his bad things. He's just saying, God, my only hope is your mercy. My only hope is for you to save me, to give me something that I could never get for myself. To give me that sense of meaning and purpose and identity that I've spent my whole life trying to earn and I can't. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus hears that prayer. And he says, that's the guy who goes home justified. But here's the question as we move towards the end of our sermon. How was this tax collector able to receive mercy? How was he able to actually have God say, you are justified? To hear God say, you're safe, you're seen, you matter, you're accepted. Or another way to ask the question is, how can you know that? If you're tired of trying to always prove yourself, if you're tired, tired of trying to find salvation by your own strength, how can you find mercy today? And for that, we need to consider alien righteousness. <laughs> At, in verse 9, Jesus says that this parable is for people who are confident of their own righteousness. That is, Jesus is criticizing or he's rebuking people who are trusting in themselves too much. Which means that the kind of righteousness you need is not a kind of righteousness that you find in yourself. It has to come from outside. It has to come from outside the walls of this world. And that's why starting in the 16th century, when Christians and pastors and theologians were talking about how to be made right with God, they started using the strange phrase, alien righteousness, which doesn't mean extraterrestrials. It means righteousness from the outside. It means righteousness, which you don't have in yourself. It has to come to you as a gift. It comes to you not because of your achievement, but because of your faith something that you receive as a gift. And so the question is, well, how did the tax collector know that he could have it? You see, he humbled himself and prayed to God for mercy. 
but we know that because of the gospel, we can have this gift of grace because God in Jesus humbled himself and died for sinners to receive mercy. That's how you know that you can have mercy because Jesus humbled himself, died for you to give you mercy. Think about it this way. Remember earlier, we talked about the cosmic courtroom that you and I, all the people in our city, every single day, we're living to try to hear a voice say to us, you're safe and you matter and you belong. Did you know that Jesus, when he was on the day of his baptism, a voice came from heaven. It's as if the cosmic courtroom, the veil came away and we could see it. And on the day of Jesus' baptism, there was a voice from heaven and the voice said, This, Jesus, is my beloved son, and in him I am well pleased. That's the ultimate verdict. That's the ultimate acceptance. The amplified voice from heaven itself saying, this is the one in whom I'm pleased. This is the one who has perfectly lived according to all my law, and he brings me delight. That's who Jesus was. And yet, Jesus, as he goes through his life, perfectly obeying God, his Father, at every moment. When Jesus gets to the end of his life, guess what? He doesn't get the blessing, he gets the curse. And Jesus goes to the cross. And Jesus dies for sinners. Do you know what that means? (laughs) When you stand before God in the cosmic courtroom, you have two ways to stand. One is you can say, here's all the good stuff I've done. And you can hope that it's enough. And you'll live your whole life with anxiety and fear and despondency. Because not only will you always wonder if it's enough, you know in your heart of hearts, it doesn't stand. That even some of the good things you do, you do for the wrong reasons. Our motives are never totally pure. And that's where the Pharisee was. But there's another way to stand in the cosmic courtroom, and that's this. It's to say, I have no hope in myself, but Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is the one who perfectly pleased the Father. And yet on the cross, Jesus died in my place. So now my hope and my defense is to say, I'm covered by him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To so stand in Jesus, to be united to him, that when the Father looks at you, when you stand before the cosmic judge, he sees the perfection of his son. And what he said about Jesus on the day of his baptism, he says about you right now today. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And in you, I am well pleased. If you're a Christian, that's true of you today. The judge has already spoken. The verdict is already in justified, righteous, safe, seen and loved. So there's only two ways to stand in your own righteousness or in alien righteousness in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes to you from the outside. And that's the gospel. That's why the apostle Paul in Romans chapter five puts it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. And in this grace, 
we stand. How are you gonna stand on that day? The invitation of this passage, the invitation of Jesus is stand in my righteousness. Stand covered and hidden in me and you'll be safe. Three things to say as we close, how to apply this first, humble yourself in the sight of God. Some of you have spent most of your life trying really hard to earn your salvation. You might have been going to church for a long time, but every single day, the operating system of your life is this, unless I perform, I'm not gonna be loved. And the invitation today is to humble yourself and say, actually, I've been trying to save myself all my life and I can't do it. So God, I surrender. I give you myself. I give you all my attempts to save myself. I surrender everything. And I say, not my will, but yours be done. Second point of application, recognize that if you're humbled in God's eyes, it'll also mean you're humbled before other people too. To be humbled in God's eyes is to then be able to look at other people, not as points of competition, but as people to love and celebrate. And that's really freeing. If you find yourself unable to celebrate when other people have good news going in their life, maybe even someone who's a colleague or someone in your school or a class, it might be because we're getting our sense of justification from how well we're doing in comparison to others. And that's a kind of bondage and freedom because can I tell you a little secret? There's always somebody more impressive than you out there. Always. And if we get our sense of identity by comparing ourselves to other people, sometimes we'll be proud and look down. Other times we'll feel despondency. But when you're humbled in the eyes of God, what it creates is a real humility and freedom in how you relate to others where you can just celebrate them for who they are and love them for who they are in themselves. Humility before God leads to humility and community. And then third and finally, humility enables you to finally enjoy using these things that we've been given in life. Do you remember earlier I gave you the example of Harold Abrams? He was the guy who ran, but he didn't enjoy running. It was his way of proving his existence, justifying his existence. Well, there was another character in the story. His name was Eric Liddell. He was a Christian. And... One day, someone came to him and said, Eric, why don't you stop running? It's just track and field. It's not important. Why don't you stop running and serve God? Go be a missionary. Work in the church. And Eric Liddell looked at them and said, don't you know, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And what he recognizes, the moment you stop needing to look to running to save you, then you can enjoy running for what it is. Running for the glory of God and for the good of others. You'll start enjoying your life, your job and your relationships and your family and your friends and everything this city have to, has to offer t- once you stop looking to it to justify you and just allow it to be a good gift that God has given. That's real freedom. We'll be a repenting church if we're a humble church. And today humility is saying, God have mercy on us. We can't save ourselves Give us an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus as we come to Jesus in faith. Let's pray for that now. God, thank you so much for this great passage. And as we celebrate baptisms today, we ask that this teaching would be much more than just a teaching, that we would actually 
find freedom today in humbling ourselves, that we would find surrender, that we would experience the righteousness of Jesus, not just as an idea, but as a reality. So do that now by the power of your spirit as we sing and as we respond and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.